and how can we use assessment as a really authentic assessment as an effective strategy. My answer is simply, I don't think we should be actually grading students in first year. Assessment is a signal. And that kind of development of that moral and ethical reason. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Studiosity Symposium. I want to acknowledge that I am hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia, as well as the broad expanses of Canada. Over 500 people have registered, which is a great number of people. So clearly assessment is something that people are interested in. Assessment is a challenge, but it's also a central responsibility to what we do in any education set setting. COVID has brought particular challenges and required that we ask questions like, what is the purpose of assessment? What are we assessing? And where does learning fit into this discourse? And today we are posing some of these questions and others to our expert panel. So the session today is organized around an introduction, five minutes, but I'm not sure that it will last that long. I will then ask each member of the panel questions that relates to their expertise and experience. Questions then will be taken from the audience. And finally, I will uh, try to, bring the, uh, session to, the, uh, to bring, bring the session together at the end. The symposium will be recorded for others to listen to later, later. So before we get to the questions, can I ask each of you on the panel to provide some background on your experience regarding assessment in higher education? I invite Julia Christensen-Hughes to speak first. Thank you so much, Judith, and it's a real pleasure to be here. And I, and I just similarly want to acknowledge um, that I'm coming to you from the ancestral lands of the Attawandran people and the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And here we recognize the significance of the Dish with One Spoon covenant um, to this land and offer respect to our Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Métis neighbors. Um, so my background, just very briefly, I've been in higher education for over 30 years and many of that in, in various administrative positions. Um, currently, I am the president of Yorkville University and I want to send a particular shout out to, to my, my Yorkville colleagues, delighted that you're joining the call. Um, in a former role, um, I was director of the teaching center at the University of Guelph and during that time, I was also president of STELI, the Society for Teaching, Learning and Higher Education. And, and there I initiated what became known as a pan-Canadian study into academic misconduct. Um, and I really learned a lot through that. Um, I collaborated with Don McCabe that many of you will know um, who founded the Center for Academic Integrity. And, and I, I, I garnered an, a number of really powerful insights into some of the challenges um, that we really need to address with respect to assessment. And, and I'm currently working on a book um, with Sarah Eaton from Calgary do, doing a 15 year update on, on some of that thinking. I, I just also wanna very briefly share that I'm passionate about the need to revisit learning outcomes. I think that's where we need to begin the conversation is what are we really hoping to achieve through higher education? What do we want our students to learn? And how can we use assessment as a really authentic assessment as an effective strategy um, to direct their attention and help them enhance their skills and, and develop values that are required in the world today? 
Thank you. Thanks very much, Lynn. Oh, sorry, Julia. Uh, Merlin, can I invite you to, uh, to talk? Thanks very much, Judith. Hello, everyone. Yes, I'm in um, Gadigal country in Australia, uh, in somewhere often known as Sydney. So uh, I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. I'm a biologist. Uh, I've worked for 30 odd years in the sector. I'm now responsible for students and their teachers. During my career, I've loved every part of my job, but I love teaching, but you know, we will talk about learning and teaching. It's become teaching and marking. And I've seen assessment because we can do more, we do do more. And I've seen assessment proliferate. And as we move to mass education, I've seen it become uh, impersonal. And I've seen the burden on the students increase. But with COVID, there's been this time of natural disruption rather than human-led disruption. And I think we're at a fork in the road. I think we've got a choice to do less assessment, uh, reignite a love of learning, and use assessment only when required, not as a stick to beat our students. I feel like they're now like medieval monks working on an expensive manuscript terrified of blotting their copybook at every single moment of every single day with continuous assessment. And I'm hoping that in COVID, we'll, I think because we can't control assessment as we did, I'm hoping things will change. Thank you. Thank you. Lynn Bassetti, also from Canada. Well, greetings from Canada. Um, my name is Lynn Bossetti, and uh, I want to acknowledge that I am coming from the unceded territory of the Silks Nation in the Okanagan. Um, I have been uh, a dean at both La Trobe University in Australia and at University UBC, University of British Columbia. Um, and I also spent 21 years at University of Calgary where we were involved in a massive innovative approach to um, restructuring teacher education. And it was astounding what we accomplished, which really involved a very different approach to assessment and a philosophical approach that we adopted to, to learning. So it was um, learning to learn and learning to teach. Um, currently, um, I am doing research on um, incivility and bullying. And so part of that um, comes from the kind of changing context and the changing role of the university. And I think really what's happened is that there's a shift in an acknowledgement of where knowledge resides. And so the professor is no longer sage on the stage and uh, that students actually bring knowledge to them. So I think it's really shifting um, how we relate students and how we involve them in their learning. And I think it also relates to an acknowledgement that as a university, uh, we're no longer the ivory tower and that, um, that society, government, business and industry are really looking to us um, to graduate students that are not only competent and have you know, desired skills, but also that we look at their aptitude and disposition. So um, there's a shift to wanting to graduate students that can engage in moral reasoning and ethical, moral and ethical reasoning. So it's created some, some shifts into um, the role of the professor and the role of the university. So 
that's where I'm coming from. Thanks, Lynn. And finally, Claire Macken. Thanks, Judith. And hi, everyone. Great to see you. I'm on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And in Australia right now, wattle is blooming, which is the um, beginning of spring. And it's such a wonderful reminder of the connection of the Indigenous people to the land we're on. So I'm Professor Claire Macken, Associate Deputy Vice-Chancellor Learning and Teaching in the College of Business and Law at RMIT University. And in terms of my area, I think I'm pretty broad in terms of looking after all learning and teaching in the college, but I particularly focus on curriculum design and learning technologies and the connection that we have with industry. And like UNSW, uh, RMIT is an absolutely huge university, over 80,000 students. And in the college itself is over 30,000 students, so absolutely enormous. And unfortunately, some of my time is spent on academic integrity issues. And I know that my colleagues as deputy deans also spend a lot of time in hearings on, on academic integrity related issues. And it really makes me think, can we make it better? Why are students breaching academic integrity? Why do they feel a need to actually cheat? And um, what can we do about it as educators? I'm also a student at the moment. So I'm studying and looking at studying from the lens of being a student is fascinating. And I can tell you what's intensely annoying as a student when you come to assessment. For example, mild changes to assessment at the last minute penalises students who have already done the assessment ahead of time. Um, I've also obviously an academic um, and I've been a teacher. So I've been on the other side of the, the table and now as a academic manager. And so I think COVID is a game changer and I hope this comes up today. I think it's time for a massive change. I think it's time we got rid of exams. What are they doing really? Do we really have to have exams anymore? And can we start explaining the purpose of assessment and why it's important to students? Thank you. Thanks, Judith. Wow, what a radical. <laughs> <laughs> so not surprisingly, the first question that I'm posing to the panel does relate to, uh, to COVID. So the question was, um, while COVID-19 has challenged the delivery of education programs and required universities to be agile and responsive, to what extent has the purpose and nature of assessment been challenged? And if so, how? And if not, why not? Where do you think it can be improved and what gets in the way of innovation? So who'd like to uh, start off responding to that question? What about if I ask uh, Julia? I learned when I was uh, doing a review in Canada, I learned a new word. And it, I was uh, reviewing the faculty at uh, Alberta. And I thought, thank God, I'm not having to chair this review. And when I got there, I was voluntold that I would be chairing the review. <laughs> so Julia, uh, uh, you're going to be voluntold. <laughs> okay, thank you. So um, a lot of the courses and programs we offer at Yorkville are online. Um, so moving to online assessment, um, other than in some specific programs, you know, didn't change a lot of things for us. And, and so I, I would say that we were already innovators in this space and, and I'll and I'll just give some examples and and I this will be reinforcing what Claire's saying about moving away from exams right and and back to this notion of authentic engagement with with assessment and 
So for example, we have a, a Masters of Counseling program where um, an assignment is to engage in a counseling exercise and to have that video captured and then to have that critiqued. So, so that's the a kind of assessment that is, is natural to the skills that we are hoping that our students will develop and, and as well as the attitudes and the values. So showing empathy, compassion, active listening, right? So you can, you, you, you can bake in, into your, if, if your learning outcomes are clear, you can come up with creative forms of assessment that, that move so far beyond that, you know, that, that traditional exam. Um, but, but I would say that, you know, where we really had to pivot was um, in our BBA program, for example, where, where we do traditionally have on-campus um, students and we're therefore, you know, pivoting to the online learning environment. And, and one of the things we did in exams that I really appreciated was um, in numeric questions, have random number generators. So, so sort of the framing of the question is the same, but each student is actually getting an, an individualized question. Um, we cert certainly didn't go to with one of these massive exam invigilators, um, which I've read a lot about in, in, in my work with academic integrity, really concerned about how they um, disadvantage racialized people, for example, where the camera can have a lot of false positives or, or really are seeing as invading the privacy of students. So um, we, we didn't go that route, um, but so, so maybe others can, can speak to that. Um, yeah, so I, I would just say like this, this was a direction we were going in in any way. Um, we already had a lot of bench strength in, in online learning assessment and we're, we're challenged to do more of that. Um, but I would say that's an area of strength for us. Okay, Merlin, can I, given that you're, 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 you're on top of Julia on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we found that there was more uh, cheating in exams and Students, I think, who otherwise would never have cheated got caught in chains of cheating. So what would happen is um, someone would get a text from their friend saying, you know, I can't do number four, what do I do? And then uh, it would explode and it would get one student, two students, three students. It would become like the Tour de France where then people thought everyone's cheating, why won't I? And then the last student would report absolutely everyone to us. And so we had this tragic situation where, you know, the... 97th person cheating I think I sort of felt that otherwise honest students were getting caught in cheating uh, we said why do we have exams and the answer was really interesting the people in the humanities and social sciences said what are exams we don't have them and the people <laughs> in maths said um, hey uh, it took us so long to do this sophisticated maths question um, it takes longer to set a good exam than it does to do it. Uh, we've got to have them. And we're having this debate. So I think, and also remember, as uh, Claire said, we've got a lot of students. And so we had also got done this group work thing and the students had mixed views. They love some group work programs, but they hate group assessments because they feel it's out of control. And whenever people feel out of control, they feel anxious. So we're toss tossing the whole thing in the air and we're trying to get insights from the people in the numerical, numerical subjects and the 
more written subjects. And I love, Julie, I think your answer of, you know, changing the numbers, that's one of the things which is, which is, which is a good fix for some of the numerical subjects. Thank you. Claire, you've got the volume in your faculty. Do you want to give us your response to that question? Yes, so I think, you know, the question about what gets in the way of innovation, I think there's a, a lot of things, but workload concerns, academics tied to evaluation scores. So I can't try something new because I'll take a dive in the evaluations and there's too much hanging on that evaluation score. Um, but also marriage to the old ways. So, you know, the exam as a product of the, um, you know, 18th century uh, Chinese approach is a nice quote from um, an article on it where in, in the Chinese system, it took place within huge walled enclosures inside of which were thousands of small brick cells laid out in straight rows like the houses of a town. And each cell contained a bench and a table and housed a nervous candidate. And I just think of maybe in the online environment today with COVID, you know, are we replicating these cells of individuals sitting at their computers, you know, busily going away with their assessments? Um, something that Merlin said as well around um, cheating and the convenience of cheating. I think it's easy when you've got multiple ability to quickly Google an answer um, on your screen, a student that probably wouldn't have done that before is thinking, well, you know, is this cheating, is this not cheating? And some of the examples, um, you know, in social media forums, in some of our hearings, um, students would say, well, the whole class is cheating. And you'd look at their, they would give us the documentation and there's a like Frankie, Angel Key and Typomatic um, as the names of the students. So we don't know who these students are. They're just you know, pseudonyms. Um, so in terms of trying to identify who is the culprit behind cheating in mass social media forums, it's, it's not easy at all. So I think what's happened with this shift with COVID, it's actually opened up a whole new conversation on what assessment actually is and, and what we should do with assessment. And I hope in a good way. Lynn. Thank you. You know, I think COVID has, um, has been, there's some really good things about COVID that has really changed our practices uh, and provided new opportunities for us as educators. And uh, one thing is, is that so often professors are so focused on the content, on designing their curriculum and the content. But now when you're teaching online, um, we have to worry about the learner's experience and keeping them engaged. So there's been, I've seen lots of innovations in thinking about how do we assess students. So when you work on a, on a, a platform, a delivery platform, so we use Blackboard at my university, but there's others. Um, as the instructor, you have so much more opportunity to um, create communities of learning and to have learning buddies and, and have group work because it's really easy to put people off into little rooms and create time for them to work like that. Now, I think that works out really well in professional faculties um, and in the social sciences. Um, I know in science, there in the science areas, it's difficult because often you have large lecture sizes and um, there's a lot of accreditation issues. Um, but what I've seen the innovation is that as professors, you don't want to be losing your students and you can see everybody. I don't know. I've never taught in a, in a class with uh, 100 students, um, but you, you want to uh, keep them engaged. So what I've seen as some innovation 
is uh, video exams or uh, periods where our students have to take responsibility for um, providing evidence of their learning, of meeting the standards, of meeting the learning objectives, such as portfolios. And then there's conversations where, where they have to demonstrate or talk about their learning. I think in the social sciences in particular, uh, professors have been um, encouraged to try some more innovative assignments where they can use podcasts, they can use video. So I think this is the good news um, about the shift in COVID into online learning. The difficulty, of course, in assessment is time. The time to do the marking, the time to spend the one-on-one -on -one with students. And I think in the sciences, this becomes really quite difficult because, um, because of the large lectures. So I think there's a lot of positives, but the thing that blocks innovation to me is one, um, money, time to, to do the assessment, but two, as professors or instructors, we haven't really been taught how to design learning environments. We've designed curriculum, but we haven't designed learning environments. So uh, centers for learning and teaching are helping us to talk about instructional design for learning, not just curriculum design. So I think that that's becoming part of our average consciousness that that's what we need to do. So I think that's the good news um, about the pandemic. So um, what, what, what would a learning environment look like? Can you help well, us I understand think, and, and give us perhaps a couple of examples? So I think when you're designing a, a learning environment, um, we can talk about rubrics for um, building knowledge, building community, sharing knowledge. So it's uh, taking the stress that part of your job as uh, an educated person is to contribute to this community. So we'll have um, assessment criteria uh, and grading that says, well, how did you contribute to that community? Designing learning environments are environments that are conducive to um, more authentic engagement with materials. So, you know, it's, it's no longer, I'm really good, I'm a good doer of school, I can memorize, I know the content, but really what we wanna know is can you apply it? So we wanna know about the quality of your thinking. So in designing a learning environment, we wanna create opportunities for that. So we're thinking way more about using podcasts, social media, uh, other things that, that keep students engaged, but connect to the real world. And I think that reduces the cheating as well because it's meaningful to them. And so, um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So I, I was going to ask Claire, uh, do you think that what Lynn has described as what I think is innovative and exciting would remove some of those challenges that you've been describing? Yes, I do. I think though, how do you scale this? Um, I mean, in terms of higher education at scale, if you look at even trying to identify academic integrity, you're picking up changes in a student's individual writing style. Uh, how do you do that if you have literally 800 students in a single course? Um, so I think there's you, you know, the ideal, the massification of higher education is definitely having an impact. And exams have been a traditional way in at least Australian higher education of putting everyone into this one crazy environment um, to try to get to show there's been an assessment of learning outcomes. But we know that a rich learning environment is the relationship between the, the, the teacher and the student and the conversations they have with each other, students talking to other students and debating and having conversations. So I think, you know, lean around the, the group work and having the breakout sessions and having students challenge each other, that's the sort of environment we would like to have in higher education. Julia. 
Okay, I'll, I'll use an example from my prior role as founding Dean of the Lang School of Business and Economics at Guelph. So Claire, we had exactly that problem. So we welcomed around 850 Bachelor of Commerce students every fall and, and wanted to give them a really engaging learning experience that would introduce them to the discipline of, of business, but also the unique values of Lang, um, where we put a lot of focus on leadership, sustainability, business ethics. Um, so, you know, what do you do? Do you teach them in cozy classrooms of 400? No, that's not what we wanted to do. So we introduced a third year course, an elective course um, on the facilitation of learning. And, um, you know, some of our top student leaders would take that course. And so they would learn how, how to facilitate learning. They would read great books of business, you know, synthesize, they, they'd learn about pedagogy. And then we cherry pick the best of them to be, um, to be the seminar leaders. So we would break that 850 down into, into groups of 40 to 60. And so the senior students are now learning so much. The undergrad students are inspired to see who they could become in three or four years time. And the culminating project of the course was called The Great Ethical Dilemma, um, where working in teams of five or six, they had to analyze an issue after they've learned ethical frameworks and these kinds of things and, and make recommendations to how the senior leadership in the organization in the scenario should respond. And they had to present their analysis to the actual leadership from those companies. Um, and, and recommend a course of action. There's no cheating that happens in that, right? Like, and, and students are engaged and, and they're wearing their suits and making this, this presentation. So they have learned teamwork. They have learned presentation skills. They've learned critical analysis. They've learned synthesis. So all of these skills that are transferable while getting introduced to the discipline of business. So um, anyway, I'm just saying, I, I feel your pain. That's that's where we landed at, at Yorkville. I'm so blessed that our class sizes are less than 25. So the faculty can get to know their students and, and do know what a student's writing style looks like. But but yes, in my prior job, I I felt your pain and, and that's what we came up with. <laughs> So really at the core of what, what, what I'm hearing is the idea of authentic assessment. And there's a, a comment here. And, and can I invite uh, request that the people who are making comments, if you want that to be in a question, then put it in the Q&A. But this, this is a comment that I think is worth getting some response from the panel. Authentic assessment for online examination of large number of students is challenging. We have 300 to 500 students learning in one subject at UTS. The idea of podcasts and video recording is excellent, but we also then need more resourcing and budget to get casual academics to help the subject coordinator in managing the assessment. It seems to be that resources, but also expertise are at the crux of sort of uh, overcoming some of the blockages. I'd be interested to hear how some of, some of you in your roles have overcome the blockages of reduced resources to, to get authentic access assessment but also to ensure that we know that students are learning and understanding the learning outcomes. Merlin. Lay a budget question at last, because so much of our time in higher education is talking about resource allocations. First of all, I just say how much I love Julia's response there. We started a thing, students as partners, but then you actually moved to students as teachers. And actually teaching something is a great way of learning something. And if you can embed that, it 
it creates an entire community and that's what humans are like and peer peer learning or the senior students so i love that and i think that's good the the budget issues are so it's uh unspoken shame of australian higher education that we have gradually uh expanded our use of casual staff in order to uh it gives us it gives us expertise many are phd students some are people from the professions but the casualization of the workforce also has negative impacts on those staff that is a uh, it is cheaper because you don't pay salaries out of the teaching time and we teach 30 weeks out of the 52 weeks or we've got the summer so 35. Uh, that's a, a major way of reducing uh, some costs. It can be a win-win casualization but it also can be a win-lose so I am concerned about it. How do we contain costs? It's exactly right. We do things like multiple choice exams which reduce marking and uh, reduce the burdens of assessment, but are absolutely not authentic. So we're always looking for the best possible solution rather than the best solution. What's my answer? My answer is simply, I don't think we should be actually grading students in first year. That would reduce our costs. I think that all the disciplines are different. I actually think some disciplines, and I noticed someone, I think Jan Roberts put in about maths. I think sometimes you do need to have exams. I think some exams will survive, but I look at it like a driving license. You need to know how to drive, but you don't need an exam after every lesson. And you need to be able to take your test more than once if you mess it up the first time. So I think we do need big hurdle Olympic Games sorting hat assessments, but I don't think we need them in first year. And that's how I would manage costs. Thanks. Claire, what's what's your response to that? Yes, I think, I mean, here is the perfect time to talk about the value of teaching as a profession. So in higher education, and I'm not sure if Canada is like this too, but the split between teaching, research and service means that nearly every time teaching is not the first choice for academics in large public higher education institutions. So, you know, this debate always happens of, you know, a normal academic whose workload is split in those areas. I have so many conversations about this with academics who, you know, say, I love teaching, Claire, I love engaging with students, but I have to also perform in my research or I won't get promoted, I won't be valued in the institution. And that's a terrible perception and one that we're under an obligation to absolutely fight. Because this is so, I mean, the future of students, their value to society and for their individual benefit um, is the purpose of teaching and learning. And that's the thing that we're missing in higher education. So when I see academics, they are often juggling this, do I put time into something that will be of benefit to students or do I put time into research? And a lot of the time, amazing teachers, really great people have to say, I need to put time into something other than teaching. And that's just the reality of the higher education system in, a, in at least Australia. Um, so, you know, I think we need to um, th think about the professional identity of higher education and individuals within it. And I, when I was a young academic, so I was a law lecturer for many years, 
Um, I was the uh, school dean of teaching and learning at the time. And I used to have to talk about teaching and learning. I was in my 20s, very, you know, naive. And a very nice academic came up to me and he said, Claire, I am a lecturer. All I am employed to do is lecture. I am here to deliver my lecture and everything else that you're talking about is not part of my job. The engagement, none of that is part of my job because I am a lecturer. And I think that, you know, those words have haunted me for the rest of my career because is that really what we're here to do? You know, just to lecture? Because there's amazing robots that we could definitely employ that would be able to do that job. So, you know, I think this is actually fundamental to the purpose of, of teaching and learning in higher education. Look, there's a question or a comment by Jill Cummings in the chat part, that, and she also poses some questions at the end, so I think it's worthwhile picking up on that. In usual thinking about assessment practices, we often see the relationship between authenticity and practicality. Time and costs are inverse. As practicality goes up, the authenticity goes down. How can we re-envision courses and curriculum to enhance authenticity and student learning? Do we need a different approach to courses? Lynn, can I, I think that picks up on some of the points that you were making. Yes, thank you. Um, I just wanted to make two comments that are related to this, this kind of practicality and authenticity. And um, I'm not sure that I understand what we mean by practical, because I think authentic learning is getting real world experiences to apply the knowledge, the cognitive knowledge we have uh, to process it and make uh, prudent decisions about how to employ what we're learning to solve real world problems. Um, but what I did want to say, and, and this was just adding to what Claire's points that she made, and, and thank you, Claire, I think you were really articulate about the challenges that we face. Um, one thing I noticed between living in Canada and living in Australia is that we don't have the term lecturer. So we have an assistant associate and full professor. So I think that's, that's, a nuance, but language matters, I think. And um, the second thing is that we have um, a role, many universities now have a pathway to full professor through a teaching stream. You still do research, but it's research that's applied that deals with enhancing teaching and learning. So I think that that's also one. And I think the, the, the last thing that I wanted to say is, and this relates to Merlin's comment, is, you know, so much of what we do is budget driven, right? And so we have to have economies of scale, we have to make things efficient, we have to show margins. But um, now that when we shift to the focus on the learner and the quality of learning, the experience of learning, uh, maybe it's time to rethink the large efficient scale lectures, right? Maybe we start to have to think about lecturing. And I think the problem is, is that as, as the professor or lecturer, my job is to design the content, right? And then we have sessionals or tutors or people that are casualized that do the important work of the assessment. And um, I mean, that can be good or bad, but there needs to be a closer, a closer alignment between that as something that's really important. And then when I was thinking about authenticity and the practical, something that I think about in really innovative programs is when um, a faculty or department can come together and adopt a philosophical orientation to the learning that we want in that program. Is it going to be inquiry-based? Is it going to be um, to be um, to discover new knowledge? It's when the whole program 
is designed on kind of a, an approach to learning rather than the content. So the standards and, and what we want to achieve is, is the outcome. It provides the kind of framework, but how we get there is, is important if we take a philosophical stance and as, as a group, determine what that might look like so that we build from undergraduate to when they get to near the end of their assessment, some uh, higher level, more engaging learning. So I think that there's a lot of, um, I think there's, there, there's a lot of good things that are happening right now. Um, but what stops us, of course, is that um, economic imperative to make the budget work and the casualization of staff. Julie, do you, really Julie, do you want to make a comment? Given that you know you're you're the head of the the totem pole. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Actually, what I'd love to do is just pick up on a, on a few comments and maybe bring some emphasis, um, some additional emphasis. So you know, it's we are going through a profound disruption due to the internet and the ubiquity of information and the ability to Google and YouTube videos. Right? If you you watch your your own children or <laughs> children of your neighbors or family like or, or yourself you want to learn something what do you do now right you you look it up I'm I'm seeing my own adult children teaching themselves all kinds of things skills that they didn't have before and they're learning it through through YouTube or some other source right so you know that the notion of the lecturer um you know the that person that wise person standing and delivering a lecture like uh, maybe that was appropriate before the printing press maybe that was appropriate before we had large scale literacy right but but we've moved on so far from that so so if information is at everyone's fingertips, then what, and, and so now I'm gonna pick up on what Lynn was saying, it's like, then what is the purpose of higher education? What is the purpose of any particular program? And, and I do, uh, and I've been sort of looking at the chat in the Q and A, and I totally accept the point to, that to be competent in, in one's profession, right? If you've entered through higher education, there's a walk around knowledge that you have to have. And I think Merlin, maybe that was one of the points you were getting at, right? There's, there's a vocabulary, there's an understanding of concepts. There's just, you, you can't look at your phone every second, right? There's just stuff you have to know, right? So, so, you know, we can have creative assessments that check for that, but it's these transferable skills, right? That, that allow us to, to assess, um, you know, what, what is the confidence that we have in this knowledge, right? And, and do we have the skills to apply it? Do we have the skills to communicate it to others, right? To, to work collaboratively and, and to bring a values orientation. So I think for each program now, and we're going through this at Yorkville, it's to clearly identify these, these learning outcomes that include transferable skills and values. And then, and then back to Lynn's point is to figure out how we design the learning environment. And, and I love what you said, Lynn, because it's so true, right? At one point, nobody knew how to teach. And then we threw these resources in and how to, you know, give an engaging lecture, but how to assess. I mean, that's the big black hole, right? So I think we do need, so to do that well, I think we need people with that expertise in teaching and learning centers, right? That are working alongside the faculty so that you, assessment isn't the last thing you think of, right? It's actually the first be, be beside the learning outcomes. So, you know, how will I know when students have, have demonstrated this or how do I assess where students are at 
when they be begin the program and then when they leave so we so we can be assured right i i love merlin what you were saying about sort of that mastery based learning like why wouldn't we give students multiple opportunities to demonstrate that they've achieved that skill i mean that's that's what learning looks like right so how do we manage this in the budget? Well, first of all, I think we get rid of, I, I agree, the assessments that don't do anybody any good. They're just busy work for everybody. I think, I actually think we spent an inordinate amount of resources like going through the motions, thinking we're doing something valuable. Um, I'll, I'll just share one, one other point and, and then I'll leave because I know, Judith, you've got to get onto other questions. But when we did this massive study on, on student cheating, at universities in Canada, um, I, I coined a couple of phrases and it was truly from reading thousands of, of students open-ended responses. And one was students cheat when they feel cheated. And the other is when we create game-playing conditions, students will engage in game-playing behaviors. And, and the kinds of things they were talking about was the assignment that never changes or the exam that never changes. The reality is once you've set an exam or set an assignment, it is out there. So one really simple cost no money approach that I strongly advised is once you've set an exam or once you've set an assignment, make it available to all of your students, put it in the library or attach it to um, your course syllabus, right? That this was the exam and this was the assignment I used last semester. And what you're doing now is you are leveling the playing field. You are forcing yourself to admit that those questions are already known. And you can ask yourself if, if that's, if, if now by repeating it, you, you will, you will be actually helping your students learn, like rather than making it a guessing game or preferencing students who had friends or relatives in the course the, the semester before. So that costs virtually no money and will have a profound effect on communicating to your students that you want to create a level playing field. So from what, what, what you're saying and what I'm hearing and reading in, in other, other things, in fact, a behavioral and a cultural change needs to uh, be, be implemented and shared in organizations. So do you want to talk to me about, you know, that, that idea of game playing behaviors is, is really quite troubling because it just sees assessment as a form of uh, ritual of verification that, you know, I've, I've, I've ticked the boxes. So that, but the cultural thing is about integrity. So. Do any of you want to make a, a comment about changing cultures and changing behaviours to ensure that students um, get value for their money, but also the promise of learning is actually realised? Oh, don't tell me I'm going to have to do more volunteering. <laughs> I'll make Lynn, a comment thank you. on that. Um, I think the shift in culture is what challenges leaders all over the, in all universities right now is this cultural shift. And that's why I work on incivility where that comes in and how difficult it, it, it is to change culture um, and to change behaviors. So I, I think that the cultural shift has to be a real commitment uh, as a department, as a unit to take some leadership to discuss that we are actually gonna talk about designing learning. And we're gonna talk about assessment practices. So one thing that struck me when I was in Australia, and I don't, I don't know to what extent this still exists in Canada, although it did before, 
is there is a lot of energy put into ensuring the reliability and validity of the assessment exercises. So once there, um, a subject has been taught, then we have to assess the kind of distribution of grades. Um, is, is there a proper distribution? So does there need to be a distribution of grade? Do, do X number of people have to get A's, B's and C's? Um, and I, I think that the other thing that is problematic is that, we, that it's important, but we put so much weight on it for the wrong reasons. So let me explain. Um, I think it's really important that students are able to evaluate courses. What I had never experienced until I moved to Australia is that if you get a low student assessment on your course, you are then subjected to engage in a subject improvement plan. Uh, I think that's a great idea. That, that would be fantastic. However, uh, as me as a teacher, I'm feeling, gee, I'm a great researcher. I'm a full professor. I got lousy evaluations this time. And now I feel like I'm being penalized. So instead of shifting the culture to investigate, well, let's talk about how we can improve this course or this subject. Um, maybe it's the content, maybe it's the assessment. So if we can change the culture where it's not such a competitive culture and, and that kind of grading happens to professors or, or the instructors or lecturers as much as it happens to the students. So my performance, my key performance indicator is that dashboard of how I'm doing in my teaching as assessed by the students. Yet that's really important, valuable information. So how can we use that in a positive way to create a culture, a collaborative sharing culture where we really wanna understand how to improve learning. Merlin from a competitive group of eight university. Um, yeah, so, so this changing culture, it, you know, it's a very hard thing to do, but I, I agree with a lot of the things that Lynn has said. And what I think we're trying to do is get a foundation of a community of people who care about teaching. And we have education focused staff who are not expected to do research and they're not even expected to do scholarship of teaching and research into teaching. And this community, we now have an increasing number being promoted to professor. It demonstrates to the students that we care about teaching, where a lot of the students think the university only cares about research or cares about money. We're a state university, not for profit, but uh, they think that. This community means that great teachers are valued in a way that I think they weren't always valued before. We have student evaluations. Uh, staff were concerned about them, but we call them my experience surveys to indicate the students are talking about their experience, not about whether the teacher was good or bad. So I do believe that if you get communities, they can be self-supporting and you can change the culture. So it's this connectiveness idea. I think it's working at UNSW. And I was really interested in Claire's comment about the person who said, I'm just a lecturer. We call them education focused staff because they're not just lecturers. They should be interested in uh, new ideas, innovations, curricula, assessments, community building, all of those different things. And we're trying to build the culture and the status. Now we are in a status of driven world. Um, and I just don't think you can deny that. So we also you know, have teaching awards and we care about the, the staff who provide a great experience for teachers. It's still high pressure, but I think actually it's a little bit more harmonious than it once was, hopefully. And I love seeing all the names of people. I know in the chat that there's a, a global community now of people who are standing up for the importance of teaching 
And we need it now. It, gone are the days where everyone just had a blackboard and a piece of chalk. That's all you need. Thank you. Look, there's a, a point from Michelle Eady that I think is, is worthwhile um, reading out and getting. Uh, I'd, I'd like Claire to start off and then I'd like, because uh, it was directed at Lynn. Um, Lynn, in your introduction of yourself, you spoke of the shift in our roles as academics. I see that there's a lot of talk about more empathetic, humane, personable approaches to our students and pedagogy in general. My question is, whose responsibility is it to ensure this is happening in, at HEIs? Should there be incentives, notice taken of those who get caught doing good? As someone in a social sciences and who teaches teachers, it is something I work on with my students all the time. But what about some of the other disciplines that may not be people oriented? How do we help them along with us in this journey and become agents of change? So Claire, do you want to respond to that? Yes, uh, definitely. I think, though, we're focusing on academics and their motivation and their engagement, but engagement is a two-way thing. It's also about students and their engagement and their responsibility as learners. We're not here providing a service to consumers. Learning is actually a relationship between learners, teachers, learners and learners. So I think that part of it is also in terms of changing culture and thinking about the responsibilities of academics in assessment. We also have to think of the role of students. And there's a fantastic comment in the comment section from Garema quite early today um, about um, you know, the motivation that students have and need to bring to learning. COVID has smashed motivation. I'm um, not sure about you, I'm sitting at home, got my kids downstairs, the dogs, my husband, all of the sounds and all that happening around. It's very hard to be motivated in these circumstances. Unfortunately, I've sat just recently on over 200 separate show cause hearings where students are at that final stage of exclusion from the university for failing. And it's heartbreaking when you read the students who have suffered through COVID and what they're living through, you really see that how hard is it to get motivated? You know, so I do think that COVID has just put this whole pressure on everyone, but we, we're sort of focusing on that one lens through on the academic side. And I think we also have to look at the other side. And I'm just going to link this to authentic assessment because authentic assessment is defined as um, providing real, real world experiences and having students solve problems that they're likely to come across in you know, a future workplace setting or even a current one. And if you think about how we can motivate students through learning and curriculum design, thinking about tasks that can you know, be practical, where they see meaning in it, where they can apply it in different environments, I think that's sort of tapping into that motivation. Uh, I'll say one more thing. I'm studying at the moment myself, which is uh, the biggest professional learning I've ever done and um, being on the other side of the table. So I'm listening to lectures on two times the speed, which used to horrify me as a lecturer. Um, but I just, how do I get this information? Two hours out of my day is insanely impossible. So 30 minutes to listen to someone extremely quickly is working extremely well. And I think, why am I listening to this? The answer is I'm trying to find out what they are looking for in assessment because the materials don't explain it. They save it all up for one and a half hours into a very boring two hour lecture. And there's this one bit that is not explained somewhere else and I'm trying to pull out. And then, you know, frustrating practices, but also amazing. And just one with authentic assessment that I'm currently in, 
So this extremely um, wonderful uh, academic, he, he gets on his headset in his very messy bedroom and he just sits there and pulls up drafts that we have to submit every Sunday. And he, he just explains very quickly what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. This is a big course, hundreds of students in it. I can't tell you how, from a learning perspective, listening to peer feedback in that context, it's all offline, we're not on at the same time, um, is helping me learn. So, um, you know, in terms of great assessment practices, sometimes the really simple things can work as well. But back to your question, I think that culture is two ways and we have to look at both academics and students and the circumstances that they're both in. Thanks, and um, we won't ask you where you're studying. You <laughs> <laughs> want to respond to that question, thanks. That was directed at you in the first place. So, sorry, is, am I to no, jump I mean, in, Judith? No, to, oh, you can jump in, yeah. Oh, okay, so sorry. So Claire, thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, I think we all felt for you trying to trying to speed listen through through that lecture. Um, wow. So again, like I would say that's creating game playing conditions, right? And, and you trying to desperately guess so you can direct your attention, right? We know that assessment and grades are a powerful currency, right, within the system of, of academe. And they do grab students' attention and they give them powerful cues as to how they should prioritize their time. Um, so, you know, we, we've created this system and, and going back to Lynn's point, you know, on, on, on a bell curve or, you know, so why, why did we impose a bell curve? What would be wrong with every student excelling if we'd set appropriate learning outcomes uh, of an engaging learning environment and an appropriate assessment? You'd think we'd celebrate if everybody excelled, right? Um, but so why do we have Belkers? For administrative purposes of deciding who gets the scholarship and who gets to go on to grad school. So like we've created a system, right? With with, with these gates that that say who gets to go through and who doesn't. So, so I think, um, again, I, to me, it comes back to doing a hard rethink about the purpose of the academy at this point in time, right? With the all of the complexity in the world and, and the wicked problems. And, and that's why you have the United Nations and other global bodies calling for this fundamental rethink of higher education and saying, you know, we need help, right? Making progress towards the sustainable development goals and the UN's 2030 agenda and what kind of partners higher education going to be. So it also calls for us to break down disciplinary silos and bring people together, right? In, in interdisciplinary ways and, and to teach the problem solving skills and problem posing and solving. And so, you know, I, I just think this is such a, an incredible time for the academy, right? There is such a call for change. Um, if we don't change assessment, nothing will change because assessment drives behavior and it's how are our universities assessed? How are we ranked? How are faculty assessed? How are students assessed, right? We're, we're all part of this system that is, <clears throat> excuse me, in my mind, totally out of alignment with what the world needs us to be doing right now. And, and so I've got another line of research where I'm really challenging rankings and how business schools in particular are ranked and business school faculty are ranked. We, we, we need to to understand the global system that we're part of and, and, and start to change the levers that are reinforcing unhelpful behaviors. 
Lynn, let's, uh, given that the question was originally uh, directed to you in, in the questions, do you, do you, having listened to two responses from our panel members, do you want to add anything or contest anything or be, be, be genuinely um, challenging? I'm loving the conversation. I'm loving the messages. I'm being distracted by the, the chats. Um, yeah, about what is a good grade um, that in Canada, it's not always so clear. So that was just, I think Tom or wrote that. Okay, so my comments in response to, to what my colleagues have said is, first of all, when I think about awards for uh, excellent teaching, so this is about shifting the culture. And I think awards are great. We have to have some way to acknowledge uh, great teachers. But it also creates, you know, want to talk about authenticity and integrity, that um, then some of us are really motivated to get that award, which is great. Um, so then it becomes like mm, uh, gaming the system in a sense, where we make sure we that students all show up and they give us good assessments and we become, um, so we become really responsive to that. So I'm actually not such a fan of always giving awards for things. Uh, that's probably comes into what I think about assessments. So, um, so awards can be good. We do. We definitely have to start recognizing that the, that teaching is really important. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is that um, students' identity is really linked to their their assessment, to their grades that they get. So we call it grade point average in Canada. So my whole identity is I'm an A student. I'm an A plus student. And they've been socialized that right from the school system, from the K to 12 system. So when we disrupt that, students don't really like that too much. So we experimented with a program where we got, we did away with assessment in terms of grades. So you can have high pass, pass, fail, or just pass, fail. Students like that high pass because they still want that kind of um, extension to know that I really extend myself so it's a high pass. So we moved to pass, fail. And with that, we then engage in narrative assessments. Now, I want to tell you that took a lot of work and it was hard to sustain, but the uh, students really had to take time. I mean, it took time for them to look at that kind of uh, longer kind of feedback. If you get an A, you get a B, you get an 80, a 70, that's immediate feedback, but a narrative assessment, it takes me longer as an instructor to do that and the feedback more for you. Uh, so students didn't really like that. Along with this program where we had pass-fail and narrative assessments, we had a learning portfolio. And it took time for students to learn how to take, have a sense of agency and voice in how they're assessed. But it really paid off at the end when they actually presented their portfolios and we created an e-gallery of these portfolios. So there was kind of a sense of ownership and having a role in that learning. So I guess it's kind of a shift to come alongside in the learning activity. So it's not just the professor, just the, the person that designs the learning, but you as, as, a, as a student come alongside in the process. You actually come with knowledge. And we wanna actually show what your, where you started and how much you extended yourself and that you have a role in determining what that looks like. Now, having said that, that program lasted for about 10 years and then it shifted. And it was 10 years of really convincing the university that this was, was a worthwhile, authentic way of assessment. But I wanna say uh, being part of that program has really influenced how I think about teaching and learning. So that was a big cultural shift, but very resource intense, intensive to sustain. And you needed the stewardship and the support 
of people in the senior administration. Absolutely. And uh, the trust, the students had to trust that this kind of process where I really don't know in the end, what kind of grade point average will I have? Will I get into grad school? Um, that kind of assessment that isn't weighted by a grade took a real shift in their mindset. But we're dealing with teachers, right? And we wanted to model in our program what we think they should be doing with students in the school. Look, in, in the last um, 15 minutes, there, there, are, there are a couple of themes that are, are, are coming up. And that question that I, uh, a couple of people have said, uh, the panel hasn't yet answered the why question uh, that, I, that I posed at the very intro introduction. So can we just focus a little bit for, for, for a moment on, you know, justify why do we assess students? And there are particular subject roles. So if you are an employer, you'll have a particular answer. If you are uh, an accrediting agency, you'll have a particular answer. Uh, if you are a parent, you'll have an answer. And the student will, 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 will probably have an answer as well. But putting those together, Merlin, why should we assess? Because you've also made the claim we should get rid of exams in first year. Yeah, so I think it's great to come to this question. The first answer, so we have a degree at UNSW called Aviation Flying, which trains pilots. <laughs> they may have well have flown you around. Uh, it's pretty clear uh, to certify their competency. It's like the driving license. That's one reason to assess. And then uh, Julia mentioned awarding scholarships. Uh, for some students, uh, it's vitally important that, and I call that the sorting hat. Uh, so Harry Potter's sorting hat. Is this person going to be, you know, what did, what did they, they have to find out what they're, I think university is about finding out what you're good at, as well as being trained in what you're good at and what you're good at you often love. So you allow people to find their way and then you do have to sort them. Now, I think the difficulty is, I was really interested by a comment by Jenny Poskett, where um, New Zealand high school students, a third of them are motivated. They really switched on. Two thirds actually are just trying to find the, the shortest way to the outcome. And now with mass education, where 50% of high school leavers will go to university in Sydney, uh, we have a mixture of students. I don't think they all need to go into that Olympic Games scholarship sorting hat. Uh, I do think they have to be certified, but I think assessments also used as a motivation for the perhaps a third of students who are there because everyone else is there and because it's an important opportunity and passage to other opportunities, but actually we use assessments to motivate and I think that goes too far. And I think the sorting hat is invoked too frequently. So I'd say it's certification, it is sorting, and it is motivation. But I think we overdo it on the motivation. I think we should let students decide whether they're motivated or not. And if they're not, they should find something else and be motivated in that rather than us driving them by weekly assessments. Thanks. Okay, Claire. Yes. What's, what's your response to the why question? Yes, really good one. I mean, you know, the, the purists would say that assessment is the way to measure student learning, right? That's, you know, um, sort of the obvious one. But 
if the, the role of the university is in part, and it's not exclusively in my view, to prepare students for a future workforce or for future professions, then assessment is a signal and um, that they've met a particular standard. And increasingly what's happened in higher education globally is that non-traditional providers have all exploded everywhere. So there's a whole range outside the traditional university sector that are providing credentialing assessment saying they've met a particular standard and that is getting currency in, in the workforce. So I actually think the higher education itself is, is under threat and needs to think this through, particularly around providing up to 100% recognition of prior learning, where effectively they're just an accrediting body. They're saying, we have assessed all of the learning of this particular student and we certify that they've met the standard that we've set. So I think that's, you know, a really interesting big conversation. But if you think about schools and Australian schools, um, you know, this ATAR system, I have a daughter in year 12 at the moment, this mark that sort of is a magic ticket into higher education, We've all got early entry, a whole range of initiatives to try to shift away from this, but they all drive towards this sort of entry score, which gets you into, you know, higher education. And then we've taken on that approach in higher education to give grades to effectively get people into the workforce. That's all rubbish. It's all changed. It's it's a joke. Industry is not looking at everyone so saying, oh, you got this particular grade in the second year uh, 81 and then you went to 52 what happened they're looking at extracurricular the whole circumstance and just linking back to assessment how many amazing comments today if you compiled them portfolio assessment where you can demonstrate all of the skills competencies and knowledge you've acquired through learning in higher education thinking about creating videos whoever said that thank you for your sympathy and me listening to two hour lectures at two times the speed I agree. Imagine if I taught it instead and I played it back and said, this is what I've learned. What a great um, thought. Peer reviews come up today. Design your own assessment. Why do, why do we have to design all the assessments? Tell students your job is to prove that you know the learning outcomes. That's your job. You work out how you do that. I did that once. I got a cushion. I taught law. I got a cushion embroidered with a, a case on legislation with an accompanying essay to prove the student had met learning outcomes. It was amazing. So I think that, you know, there's, there's so many aspects to this, the purpose of assessment, but I don't think anyone really thinks about it. We just churn out the assessment, the exams. We've always done it this way. Um, so we'll keep doing it. And just one more thing, I agree with Merlin. You want to know that your nurse knows which vein to stick the pin in, right? You don't want to go, oh, just guess. You know, I never got to that part of it because I didn't want to do that. That's important. So assessment plays a really important function in credentialing. Um, but within the scope of all of the things that we assess, maybe we're over-assessing, maybe it's time for a completely new approach. Thank you. I think um, we'll, we'll go to the next frame that I see in front of me, which is, it was Julia. Thank so you. Yeah, what's the I, purpose? I, I, yeah, I love the, all the points that have been made so far. And of course, within the literature, we talk about formative and, and summative assessment and, and then, you know, adding, adding in the, the motivation. So I guess I, 
I think of the summit of sort of as that certification, right? So that when we give a credential, it needs to represent something, right? That, you know, reasonable mastery of the, the learning outcomes that have been articulated. So, so I do think that's a role we have to take seriously. Um, yeah, I guess that the two new points maybe I would add is that I've never written anything that hasn't been phenomenally improved through peer review. And by being questioned or challenged back, right, it's caused me to think more deeply, to double check my sources, to wonder how I could articulate this more clearly. So I would just say all of us in the academy benefit all the time from feedback, right, to how well we're we're communicating something or how well we understand it. Um, yeah, so, so, so that was one point I wanted to make. The other is, are we not all motivated by deadlines? Right? Like, so in our, in our busy lives, right? To have a deadline that accompanies a, like something is due, like how, what, what a flurry of activity happens and what a focusing of the mind to turn it in. So, you know, I don't know if we'd get quite so much learning happening if, if we didn't have feedback and if we didn't have deadlines. So I'm not advocating to throwing everything out, I think just to human nature, right? We we need those those um, those goalposts, right? Just to, as I was saying, the more the more effectively they're aligned with the learning outcomes, then then the better off I think we all are. Thank you, Lynn. Why do we assess? Well, I don't know that I have that much more to to add, but I I really like what the conversation that we're having right now. Um, I think I want to come back to the idea when in assessment where knowledge resides, and I, I love the idea of peer assessment. So the idea that that the the lecturer or the professor has all the knowledge and is going to be the one that determines the quality and uh, and and certainly we do that, but that peer assessment and the kind of knowledge, the rich knowledge that the students bring to the class and their learning. I think it is interesting to be able to, to utilize that in assessment practices. Um, I think one thing that I would add about assessment, and, and it kind of goes back to what Claire was talking about, is that um, when you get, so employers, society, um, government, uh, taxpayers, they, they, they look to the university to, uh, with, with confidence that, that if you go to a university, we have confidence that in the students that, that you produce uh, are gonna be of high quality. It's been a, a rigorous assessment. They have the knowledge. We have confidence in the students that you graduate. So the confidence isn't, as Claire mentions, oh, I had a you know, grade point average of 80 or I was an A student. Sometimes it's the institutional reputation. I went to Harvard. Oh, but I was only a C student. Well, you would have been kicked out if you were a C student. I was only a B student. Do we care that? No, we care that you went to Harvard. So our reputation, our institutional reputation um, resides in the quality of student uh, that, that, we, that we produce. So I think the movement to a more holistic assessment, it isn't just about the knowledge and skills they have, but it's also about who they are as a person and that kind of development of, of that moral and um, ethical reasoning. I think that that's imperative. We want, we want to produce really good citizens. And somehow we think that if you went to Harvard or Columbia or Stanford, I'm just taking America, um, it kind of resonates that, oh, you know, this is a very high quality student. And we think that in their learning that that's part of that process. At least that's what I think. 
Uh, would I think of that if I was, uh, if I came from University of Melbourne, uh, University of Sydney, uh, University of Toronto, UBC, University of British Columbia, our institutional rep reputation says something and it says something in the credentialing of our students. So assessment does matter in that way. A number of people have been talking about peer-to-peer um, -peer assessment and, and you, you brought it up then, Lynn, and uh, you, you've alluded to it a, a, as well, Julia. So how can we um, ensure that peer-to-peer -peer assessment is seen to be a robust um, way to assess, but in fact, where the focus is on, is on improvement rather than compliance? Mm -hmm. So I could jump into that yeah. if you'd like, Judith. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll give another example. Um, this was an, an example provided by a psychology professor from Brock University. And he, he did receive an award, Lynn. So I, I am a fan of some learning and teaching awards. So a 3M National Teaching Fellowship Award. And, and Claire, you might be interested in this as well, because he had a very large intro psychology course and, and wanted to, to do something other than, you know, teach sort of the facts of psychology. And so borrowing from Lee Shulman from the Carnegie Foundation said, like, rather than teaching psychology or teaching history, right, we want to teach people to think and act like psychologists or like historians. So the sooner we engage them in the practice of the profession, then, you know, the better opportunity they'll have to learn these skills. So he set up his class as a journal, as, as, as with, with the task of publishing a journal and and they did that each year for real and so the students were assigned to to read a certain literature to investigate more and to write papers and then the court the class was set up like peer reviewers and through this peer review process of reading other people's papers and giving feedback and getting papers on their own and and then the the course progressed and then Finally, the, the papers that made it through, right, were selected for publication. And I just thought that was such a fascinating example. Now, of course, he, he set up all, all kinds of frameworks and, you know, to, to help the students who were novice learners. Um, but he said that the, like the pride, right, of, of the students' papers who ultimately made it through, not every paper made it through, but what the students learned in the process really just set them up so well um, with, with a host of skills that they could take with them in, into, you know, second through, through fourth year. So um, anyway, so that would be an example of peer review um, and, and I'm brought, brought I'm, into... Yeah, sorry. I'm going to have to cut you off because it's now... Yep, I'm done. 15 minutes after the hour and we've now finished. And the fact that we still have 205 people engaged on online indicates how much people have enjoyed and got from the session. But I was asked to uh, sum up and I'm going to rephrase something that you said, Julia. Uh, I think all of you um, have actually made a call for change and the people participating have silently made a call for change. And if we don't change assessment, nothing will be changed. So I think that this is a timely moment for us to actually think about what's the purpose of assessment, why we, why we do it, but also put in place to change it. So thank you to the members of the panel for your robust and, and really um, engaging uh, contribution. Once again, thank you to the panel. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Judith. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Judith. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, all the people making comments.